This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us today at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 455, Elogium. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we take a look at each and every episode of Star Trek, seeing if they withstand the test of time and looking for the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein. This week, Elogium, the one where Kess prematurely suffers the most dreaded part of any young person's life, puberty while Janeway and Chakotay have babies on the brain. I'll be back with trivia right after Norm tells all of you how to reach all of us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember... Your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here is John Champion with this week's trivia. Thank you for that, Norman. So this week, Elogium, keep in mind right away that this is a first season episode that was held back to the second season. That's important to know up front. First of all, when you see who worked on it and some of the timing of events in the episode itself, which uh, may come back for discussion a little bit later. So we have a story by Jimmy Diggs and Steve K.J. We've seen Jimmy's credit before on the DS9 episode, Dr. Bashir, I presume, which he actually wrote after successfully pitching this story to Voyager. This was his first one. Now, in his prior to being a writer life, Jimmy had a number of jobs outside of television and even served in the Navy during Vietnam, which partly inspired the story. When his ship was self-illuminated, it was a very, very dark night, and was followed for a long time by an enormous school of fish and other ocean life that just stayed nearby, hovered, wouldn't go away. So then another real-life crossover for this story is the name of a new character who we'll meet, Samantha Wildman, who is named in honor of the girl, seven-year-old girl, whose kidneys saved Jimmy's wife. Uh, She had to have transplant. The seven-year-old girl, Samantha Wildman, was the donor, and uh, he wanted to make sure that was his special request that that name became part of this Star Trek story and others to come. Now, we will see Jimmy's name a few more times on Voyager, and Steve's name, well, we will only see once more, and actually those two episodes then being the entirety of Steve's professional TV credits. So, These two guys get the credit mostly on the strength of Jimmy's pitch, but the teleplay credit goes to Kenneth Biller and Jerry Taylor, 
It was Jerry who wrote the script based on Jimmy's pitch and actually flip-flopped the A and B plots. So she had done her draft, and then she handed it over to Ken Biller for a rewrite, and that was his first job on Voyager. See, we're still in season one here even though the credit appears much later. But this is the show, after a lot of growing pains, that got Ken his staff job on Voyager. It was directed by Wienrich Kolbe, uh, proving himself again to be a go-to guy on Voyager. Rick is here right after Faces and Initiations, and we will catch him again about midway through the season. Now, this is fun because normally, Norm, I write up all the trivia for each episode, but we have a special contribution from a very special part of each and every episode of Mission Log, and that is our very own technical director, Earl Green. Most of you may know that Earl worked in promotions on a UPN channel back in the day that Voyager was on, and he dropped in this very intriguing nugget of trivia for our discussion today. So in Earl's own words, starting in the first season, the UPN promo feed sent down by satellite overnight to the affiliate stations featured two different promos for each Voyager episode, male focus and female focus. The male focus tended to be action, explosions, and pew-pew. The female focus uh, was either relationship-oriented or simply highlighted the women on the show. It was like the TV equivalent of the restaurant asking if you want boys' toys or girls' toys with your kids' meal. Elogium was the nadir of this, because I remember the female focus promo asking, Kess is pregnant? Who's the father? All that build-up and no guest star role for Maury Povich. Seems like the practice of gender-focused promo spots went away during the next winter break between Resistance and Prototype to be replaced by something that probably would have been the male-focused spot 100% of the time. It is entirely possible that the practice was discontinued for simple cost-labor reasons. Two different promos per week means twice as much work and possibly overtime for your promo writer or producers, editors, voice talent, etc. But I'd also like to think that UPN stopped because it was completely unnecessary. That this practice even existed is a testament to how uncertain the network was about a woman in the captain's chair while the rest of us were sold on it by two-thirds of the way through Caretaker. (laughs) So thank you so much, Earl, for sharing that story, but also putting absolutely the appropriate context around uh, what was happening with those very weird promos coming down from UPN. You know, John, I'm going to jump in here for a second because I'm wondering if the network saw this episode and saw this line and then realized okay, are we doing the best thing here for the show? There's a line here, and I'm going to reiterate this in Mm -hmm. observations. There's a line here that Neelix says to Tuvok, and he says, a daughter, I don't have anything to teach a daughter. And Tuvok said, why would it be any different from what you would teach a son? There you go. Yep. Yep, that kind of says it all. All right, let's meet our one and only guest star this week. Uh, We have just that one, but who will become a recurring member of the cast. Let's welcome Nancy Hauer as Ensign Samantha Wildman. Like a lot of Trek actors, Nancy's background is mostly in theater. From high school, she went to study at Juilliard and then proceeded to festivals and the New York stage. While her on-screen professional acting credits aren't too many, Voyager ranks pretty highly with a total of eight episodes. 
That in addition to her work as an actor, though, Nancy moved seamlessly behind the camera, racking up credits as a writer, producer, and director to this day. She directed multiple episodes of shows like Drama Club, Those Who Can't, and 10 Items or Less. She also created the Hulu comedy called Quick Draw about a man who attempts to bring forensic science out into the Wild West in 1875. Check it out. In the spring, Chekote's fancy lightly turns to thoughts of what people are getting up to in the turbo lifts. Prologue. Just another day on Voy. Oh, hey, random couple making out in a turbo lift. They're interrupted by Commander Chakotay, who uh, is sure to report it to the captain. Then there's Kess and Tom Paris, who just happen to be carrying cabbage back to Neelix's kitchen, but their very presence sets Neelix off into a jealous outburst. Kess tries to calm him down, but even the distraction of a cool-looking beetle in that cabbage isn't enough to assuage his worries. On the bridge, Chakotay does have a brief chat with Captain Janeway about fraternization, and she is far less interested in policing her crew's personal lives than he is. Just then, they are all distracted by a magnetic anomaly that turns out to be some kind of swarming life form, so they'll take the ship in for a closer look. Catching up with Cass again, she's in the aeroponics bay looking after the vegetables, but those beetles sure are cool-looking and apparently tasty, as she just can't help herself from shoving a whole bunch of them in her mouth. Act 1. Those swarming life forms live in space, propelling along at high speed to absorb inorganic particle nutrients around them. Similarly, Kess is in her quarters, operating at great speed, absorbing all the food she can on a tray in front of her. When Neelix rings the doorbell and shows up with flowers to apologize for his earlier jealous outburst, she quickly hides the food that she's gorging on. Neelix says he trusts her, just not Tom, and... What are all these bowls of food doing around here? Kess explains that she can't stop eating. Potatoes, fruit, beetles literally cannot stop. Neelix insists over a physically resistant Kess that she go to sickbay. Back on the bridge, the crew watch those swarming beings move around, and Janeway gives the order to back the ship off and give them some room. But when Paris puts the ship in reverse... Nothing happens. No matter what he does, the helm doesn't respond, as apparently the creatures are drawing them in closer. Act 2. Ship systems aren't entirely inoperable, but the creatures are having an effect. Warp power is still online, but if they engage it, there's a risk of damaging the swarm. From engineering, Balana has a novel idea, creating an inverse magnetic pulse from the deflector, acting as a kind of targ scoop to gently push them out of the way. Janeway gives the go-ahead to see if she can do it. Cass is in sickbay being examined by the doctor, and he's coming up empty on a specific diagnosis. He needs more time to examine her, but Neelix is getting in the way, creating a huge distraction to his work. The EMH kicks him out of sickbay, and wouldn't you know, Neelix goes straight to the bridge to complain to Captain Janeway. She's distracted by the intrusion, but concerned, especially since it seems Kess's symptoms coincide with encountering the swarm. When the doctor calls for her presence in sickbay, the captain and Neelix make a beeline. What they find is Kess shaking, sweating, nearly unable to communicate. 
To the doctor's surprise and great concern, she has locked herself in his office behind a force field. What's more, he tells the captain that he found a newly present tumorous growth of some sort on her back. The doctor already tried to talk Cass out of there. Neelix tries. Finally, Janeway gently approaches the room, asking Cass to lower the force field so they can talk. Struggling to get the words out, Cass, embraced by Janeway, explains that she's going through something the Okapa do, a physical maturation that shouldn't have come for another few years. That growth is how her people reproduce. It's where she would carry her child. Janeway understands and relates it to human puberty, but it has all increased due to the effect of the swarm. Kess's greatest worry, though, is that for her, not only is the elogium happening way too early, but it's the one and only chance she has for a child. Act 3. Those swarming alien beings are still doing their thing, uh, swarming, and we're all waiting for Balana to finish up her deflector modification. That leaves Janeway with some time to discuss Kess's situation with Chakotay. It speaks to a bigger issue about the crew eventually pairing off, having kids, and Voyager being a generation ship. Kess is still feeling the extreme physical effects of the elogium, but she and Neelix need to have the talk now. She has always thought she would have a child, and now the urgency has moved up. Neelix says he thought he wanted to be a father, but in his life, up until now, hasn't been stable enough to contemplate it. So he starts thinking of all the reasons that perhaps he isn't ready, or how hard it would be to raise a child on Voyager. The more evasive he gets, the more frustrated Cass grows with him. She's now showing signs of the Epasophor, a part of the phase which will bond them for six days of conception. So she kind of needs to know now. Well, in 50 hours anyway, until this phase is over. So yeah, Neelix will sleep on it. He'll let her know, presumably before the 50 hours is up. The pressure is taking a toll on Neelix, who is failing at his duties in the kitchen, well, more so than usual. Tuvok comes in for lunch, and it's a perfect time for Neelix to pick the Vulcan's brain a little about raising children. Tuvok has four of them, and while nobody should go into fatherhood if there are strong doubts, there are infinite rewards and his children occupy his thoughts, which is about as close as this Vulcan is going to get to saying that he loves his kids. Neelix turns it over in his mind. Maybe he could teach a boy a thing or two, or as Tuvok points out, a girl, too. There is that possibility, and Neelix could teach her the same things that he could teach a boy. And that gives Neelix something to think about. On the bridge, Balana implements her inverse magnetic resonance field, and it seems to be doing the trick, until it doesn't. Voyager starts moving away, but then a number of those creatures shifted from reddish-orange to a light blue and swarmed closer to the ship, with some of them attaching to the nacelles. It's enough to start messing with tactical and navigation systems. Before they can get clear of the swarm, though, a new visitor approaches, it's a giant version of these little creatures, and it's coming right for the bow of Voyager. Act 4. Tom Paris steps on the gas to get them out of there a little faster. It's also working. Until it doesn't. The larger creature emits an electrically charged plasma stream, and that stops them dead in their tracks. Bellana sees this as an attack, but Janeway reminds her that they are the interlopers here. They'll proceed with caution. 
Just then, some of the smaller creatures swarm around the larger one, apparently sensing the plasma stream as similar to what was coming from Voyager's nacelles. Chakotay puts together a hypothesis. They could be mating, the smaller creatures and the larger one. The movement, the color changes, the attraction to the plasma, it looks to him like these could be signals of how this species mates. Meanwhile, Neelix has given it some thought. He tells the good news to Kess that he is ready, willing, and excited even at the prospect of being a father. Kess perks up. Now all she has to do is get someone, a parent figure, to do the ritual foot rub until her tongue swells and she's ready. Wait, what? Well, the doctor can do that part, even over Neelix's uneasiness at the idea. It'll take about an hour, and that's just the right time for Cass to express her loneliness and second thoughts to the doctor. She misses her family, her father, who would be rubbing her feet right now. She needs guidance and needs the EMH's insights right about now. He's not a psychologist, but his words of wisdom about mating rituals across different species give Cass some room to ponder. She was sure when Neelix wasn't, and now that Neelix is sure... She isn't. Back to the bridge, they're still trying to get away from the swarm, and a short burst of impulse power might do it. At least it could get them far enough away from the small creatures that are attracted to Voyager, mistaking the ship for a potential mate. Voyager slowly pulls away, but the larger creature, perhaps sensing a threat, turns headlong on a collision course with the ship. Act 5 the creature keeps colliding with Voyager, and both Balana and Tuvok are leaning toward a more aggressive posture to shake it off. So they'll use Voyager as a ram to give it a bump out of the way. Yeah, that's not working either. Before it gets too rough, Chakotay has another alternative. Rather than fighting more, he suggests making Voyager appear submissive, rolling over and appearing blue like the other creatures, something they could pull off by venting plasma. Now that actually works. And with Voyager losing its mojo and those randy little creatures, they are free to fly off unencumbered by romantic attachment. It's late, and Cass and Neelix have time for a heart-to-heart. -heart. He's feeling a bit distant over the prospect of not becoming a father, but Cass shares some promising news. The doctor thinks her elogium was false, brought on by the presence of those creatures. She may well be able to conceive again at the right time, and with that, she kisses Neelix. Sometime later still, Janeway in her ready room contemplates the idea of her crew having kids and what that means for them, for the viability of the ship, for the kids who will be born. It's the perfect moment for a visit from Ensign Samantha Wildman, who has just been on bridge duty during the encounter with the swarming creatures. Wildman announces that she's pregnant had been trying for ages with her husband, who's at DS9, and now this is all she has left. She's nervous, concerned, until Janeway meets her with, congratulations, Ensign. The end. Fantastic work, John, on the recap. Thank I know you. that uh, you know, this episode is so fully packed with, with, with so many different interesting things going there are, on. There are many things happening, yes. yes. I mean, are we going to tiptoe around these things as things, or are we just going to kind of be mature about it? Maybe say more mature than Chakotay watching people kiss in an elevator. Thank you. Yes. Right? Oh, man. <laughs> Let's just jump okay. right into it, right? Because yeah. some people will be like, you know, that's not appropriate or that's appropriate. Here's the yeah. thing. 
So we start off with Chakotay um, kind of like interrupting a romantic interlude in the turbo yeah. lift. But I hear him, What I hear what he's saying, but I hear him saying it in Wesley's voice in Justice, <laughs> where he's just standing there with his arms crossing, we're with Starfleet, we don't PDA. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yes. Perfect. And, and all right, here's the question. Should it have been Chakotay or should it have been Tuvok? Or Tuvok. Sh- okay. Totally okay. Tuvok. All right. Uh, there we go. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. And, of course, they get distracted by a magnetic disturbance, of course, because, I, it, like, literally, somebody's somebody's outside, you know, dangling keys, and they catch the light, and they're like, oh, we, we have to go to that. We have to go check that out. Can't just stay on our mission to go home. But So are you saying this is Voyager's version of Squirrel? <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Exactly. <laughs> uh, all right, so we all know the phrase that uh, Helen of Troy is the face that launched a thousand mm-hmm. ships, right? Yeah. Is the scene where Janeway, when she looks at Chakotay and Chakotay looks back, talking about on-ship fraternization, the way that they look at each other, oh. is this like where the Chakotay and Janeway shipping kind of really takes steam? Because I don't know if it's intentional, but Janeway... Kate, mm-hmm. no, she mm-hmm. is a former soap opera actor, yeah. and I do believe that Roger is a soap opera actor or former soap Robert, opera actor. Uh, uh, Robert Beltran, yes, yeah, yeah. So soap opera actors have that look where they have to maintain very specific, very longing eye contact, you know, mm. with their scene partner. Do you think that's what's happening? That's interesting. Okay, so or I, I wonder if it's one of those things where just the actors are making choices as they're acting and sometimes that might be conscious might be unconscious you know, just a, a thing that they're doing to play kind of the life of the character and i i wonder if we look at that in retrospect and see that or if that's what people saw at the time and just thought oh there's something there because there are a couple of moments in the episode there where she's holding her uh, picture of mark you know mm-hmm. so he's not out uh, of her thoughts you know oh. But, oh, oh, I do wonder. I do wonder. Okay. Inquiring minds want to know. I want to know. Yeah, what did you all think? That's a good question. (laughs) Uh, Now, okay, I might not have seen that coming. What I definitely did not see was Cass eating bugs. Um, (laughs) When it happens once, I'm like, oh, okay, that's a a bold move, and that's a, a tough thing to do for the actor, and wow. But, oh, now a whole mouthful. Now a whole bunch of bugs. So uh, bold choice on the part of the production. I think there was actually one moving beetle left like on her palm, on the fat of her palm, yeah. crawling down towards her wrist. Oh. There was a live beetle. Oh, man, oh, man. <laughs> uh, yeah. So Samantha Wildman's here. Yep. Is this the first time we've seen someone kind of close to resembling the captain's hairstyle? You know, for all the time and memo ink spilled on women's hairstyles on Voyager, and certainly not the only show at that time or before or probably since, um, it was kind of an interesting choice to mimic those so closely. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was a little strange. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like when dialogue's written in a way where it transitions from scene to scene. There's a scene in the beginning here where Chakotay's talking about the protozoa, like, speed eating. 
and he said that it's not leisurely dying, and it cuts right to Kess just wolfing down food. The perfect choice. Yes. I thought that was brilliant. The perfect choice. And let's talk about what she's eating in this episode. So in addition to beetles, she is chowing down on mashed potatoes. And uh, why not, of course? Uh, on that platter, there's passion fruit. Uh, there are raspberries. And there is blood orange. Um, all delicious things. Maybe not together. Maybe not with the mashed potatoes. I, I don't know. Not necessarily a great choice. We won't get into the stew that Neelix is cooking later because we don't really see that. But we do see uh, passion fruit and some other like exotic uh, melons and, and other sort of um, less common fruits in his kitchen. But yeah, that, that, that's the, the bulk of what we see in front of her. I got to ask a question, mm-hmm. though, about the, the culinary choices here. I mean, who doesn't love mashed potatoes and dirt? Yeah, well, I mean, two great tastes that taste great together. Uh, you know, it's a texture it thing. Is. I think know? so. I think yeah. so. Hey, and uh, we learned a Klingon phrase, the targ scoop, which I thought was great. That, it's a cow catcher. Come on. <laughs> and so good. That, it's so it's good. a wonderful phrase. And I cannot even begin to express my total disappointment that we never got a Klingon ground assault vehicle playset with targ scoop. Action figures sold separately, batteries not included, collect the whole set. And oh, and there's a, a very Star Trek y thing in here. How many times over the years has a doctor called the bridge and said, I think you need to get down here? Like, just summarize your thoughts. You know, mm-hmm. like, like you, I, I know that everybody in Starfleet has a flair for the dramatic, like coming into the room at exactly the right moment, letting the doors close or open at exactly the right moment. The doctor could say, Kess is freaking out. <laughs> Please come down, you know. But instead of just, I think you need to get down here. Like th- Those are not the words you want to hear. No. And I know that they're broadcasting that over comms, but I'm sure, sure. that there's a comms to comms channel mm-hmm. where Janeway can sit at her, you know, the Mercedes chair with the Mercedes leather bucket seat it, options. and Exactly. Listen to a private conversation. Um, speaking of Janeway, though, I really did like the scene where... You know, Kess is obviously in distress, and Janeway reaches out to her with open, stretched arms. That's a scene that you don't see from, and and rightfully so. These aren't these aren't made for every single captain's you know personality, but you don't see that from Kirk yep. or Picard or Cisco, yeah. you know, or even future captains. Since I can't jump the timeline, <laughs> but that scene is there's something special. Uh, between Kess and Janeway. And it was very obvious in that moment that it was just more than a captain and a crewman. Yeah. Yep. I thought that was really yep. nice. Um, really great use of uh, compositing and lighting in the scene where Chakotay and Janeway are sitting having their bowls of broth or mm-hmm. whatever they're drinking. And why is Janeway drinking out of a regular bowl and Chakoche drinking out of this really awkward trapezoidal bowl? He's, he's got the special Chakoche bowl. Uh, yeah, it, it was a little strange. I kept expecting to see it just running down the front of his uh, uniform. <laughs> you know? And he looks like, I mean, Roger, uh, Robert, uh, he's just looking at the bowl like what am i supposed to do with this where am i supposed to drink out of how does this work it's a space bowl but it is a failure as a space 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 Space. yes a really nice moment though uh contemplating voyager's future and their crew needing to reproduce and what this means for the mission that's the kind of contingency that should be discussed along the way and it's what i wanted more of out of voyager And, and i you know i'll always come back to this that i get the need to do individual 
individual standalone stories. But I like that kind of connective tissue to the overall premise when you get to have a moment like that, especially knowing Again, this is an episode shot for the first season. I think it would have been very effective in the first season because these are the kind of new ideas that they have to deal with with the prospect of this, you know, multi-decade mission that they have. I think that leads into uh, this conversation that Cass and Neelix are having about parenthood. Mm -hmm. And Neelix rightfully asks, I think, a very obvious question. Is raising a child on a starship... I mean, he says mm-hmm. that that's, this is what hardly what I would call the ideal environment. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I understand why Kess is upset for a variety of different reasons, but he's, acting a, he's asking a very practical question. Yeah. Well, I wrote down a similar note from that same scene uh, where Kess says to Neelix, all you're thinking about is yourself. And, and I have to ask is that entirely wrong in this point? Maybe we'll come back to that. You know, the, the, not so much the mm. pithy, fun observation. Maybe, maybe that's something we'll mm. need to come back to in our in our discussion. I got to hand it to the writers there uh, for really coming up with some odd alien mating concepts, like the uh, apostrophe. Um, like, uh, what is that? Just glue on her hands? I mean, because the whole idea of being bonded for six days. I, like, I like the they let their imaginations run wild. Although, do we even know that Okampa and Talaxians can reproduce? Because the Okampa seem to have some very specific needs when it comes to that. Does that mean she can't walk down the hallway and like high-five someone for having a good day? Absolutely not. <laughs> that is you know, off-limits. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So hearing Tuvok, going back to what we were talking about and, and placing Tuvok at the scene of the elevator at the very beginning of the episode... I think that would have played very differently and funny because hearing him talk about parenthood from a logical perspective mm. is interesting yeah. because that's the one thing I think in the 56 years of Star Trek that a lot of Star Trek fans kind of wrestle with Vulcan parenting, yeah. the joy of children. Emotion is a joy is an emotion. So how do you have emotions for children in an emotionless society? Unless you're Sarek, of course, which I mean, none of this. Not, a, not at all. Not at all. Right, I'm just kidding. Relax, Sarek fans. Yeah, yeah. Let's say, oh, but but you know what? The thing is, the Vulcans have those seething emotions uh, just boiling under the surface. And we know that, partly mm-hmm. because Neelix says to Tuvok, we have some, uh, what is it, Gabarosti stew left over from last night. And then Tuvok says, very well, but that eye roll that Tuvok gives, that betrays all of Vulcan logic. That was just very apparent. Neelix should have just you know, a dash of hot sauce just for <laughs> just to stick it to Mr. Mr. Vulcan. Right. So uh, going back to what I said in, in John's trivia, I still think that this is the best line in the episode because it speaks volumes. Neelix says, a daughter? I don't have anything to teach a daughter. Tuvok says, because he's a logical Vulcan, why would it be any different from what you would teach a son? That line in context to today yeah. blew me away. Says just blew me so away. much. And in such a short, efficient couple of lines. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, what is interesting, of course, Neelix immediately following into the, the various stereotype line of thought about, you know, what to teach a, a boy versus what to teach a girl. And, you know, that that is culturally what his people do presumably or maybe that's just what he gets out of the the culture that he was around but it is so nice to see our crew steer him away from that gently and logically 
just very much to the point. There was no outrage. There was no like, I'm going to teach you a lesson. It was just posing the right question at the right time. And, and I love it. So in, in regards to the larger protozoa, mm-hmm. do you think it would have been a better idea if Voyager just boosted the audio with a little bit more Barry oh, White? Oh, a hundred times, yes. That is exactly yeah. what should have happened. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it would have been better off for mm-hmm. them, I think. Okay, so talking about <laughs> talking about mating rituals mm-hmm. on Voyager's bridge. Okay, is it me, or is talking about sexual anything <laughs> in '90s Star Trek just <laughs> flat out awkward? Right, yeah. because it feels that way. Here it goes all the way back to the naked now and TNG when Picard yeah. Bev comes into his office and she zips down her tunic and he's like, bop, 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 bop. you know, like what is that? What is it about sexuality in Star Trek that just doesn't organically work, particularly in this time? Yeah, right. yeah. It, it, it's. Uh, I mean, I I think we could do a whole show on this. Or believe me, uh, like folks, if you want to go uh, watch videos by Jesse Gender or some of the other uh, excellent commentators who will do you know whole multi-hour theses about sexuality in Star Trek, and you see this very weird shift from kind of the boldness of TOS to the a bit more buttoned-up version of 80s, 90s Star Trek, and and even where does that get us now? So I think they're always kind of playing with this idea of what can and do we get away with on screen based on who we might think our audience is and what they can take and what their appetites are. John, we're Starfleet. We don't birds and yeah, bees. That's right. That's right. All right. Okay. <laughs> It's nice to know that pregnancy foot massages are consistent across species mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and series because you have the Doctor and Cass in this episode with the foot massages. Mm-hmm. Is this kind of like a weird kind of Chief O'Brien kind of cure territory thing that we're doing here with the two oh, of them? Oh, interesting. Hey, and don't forget Dana Troy getting a uh, foot massage. I think that was the opening of uh, Act 2 in um, – was that – wait, was it Outrageous Fakona? No. I can't uh, – it sounds outrageous. Yeah, it sounds, it's pretty outrageous. I know that I'm mixing up the titles. Please, no emails. But <laughs> they made a very big point of that in that episode. It was a little little strange way to open that scene. But I, there was something that preceded that that I really liked, and that's Neelix asking if that foot massage from the EMH will work. Will that work? He's not a real person. And her coming back immediately, he's very real to me. I love maintaining that with her, that no, the, the EMH is real. Like, he is really a hologram who is really our doctor who I really interact with. He may just not be naturally occurring, but he is real. Right. And her confessing to him that she is, uh, you know, she's lonely because no one of her species is there Mm. to be able to help her through this, especially her father, who she confides the doctor in about their relationship. So that's important. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then the doctor just decides to drop some interesting, disturbing factoids in here, like uh, how the Breen reproduce very young, uh, while the Skathos execute any women who conceive before their fourth decade. Yikes, that's, that's scary. Mm-hmm. So, Valana's response to the, the giant, sexually aggressive protozoa to treat him uh, in kind is... That projecting Klingon biological foreplay? She's not wrong. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just knowing what I know about Klingons and their relationships, that just seems appropriate. Even more appropriate, we ram him. So there's phrasing (laughs) going on there about the protozoa. Perfectly spoken by Janeway. Yep. Um, 
I'll be more professional now in my next observation. Number 47, sighting. Timestamp 3928. Harry says, Captain, shields are at 47%. Mm, Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah, yeah. You already seriously said the best line in the episode. I'm going to make my case for the other best line in the episode. And it is Tuvok saying, it appears we have lost our sex appeal, Captain. I'm just here to say, Tuvok, don't you ever say that. Ever. Because it's not true. (laughs) And uh, by the way, on a serious note, that is the line and the pitch that sold this story. That that was uh, in, G- no, yeah, in really? Jimmy Diggs' recollection. He said that was the line. Like he's you know telling the story, telling blah 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 blah. But then you get to a line like that, and that's where they said sold. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. That's interesting. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, I wonder if Samantha Wildman would have stayed on the planet with the thirty sevens. See, knowing what she knows. Uh, you know, the more that we talk about like how this episode would have been a part of season one and mm-hmm. presumably, you know, before the 37s, because that would have been right. potentially the season ender. Although Jerry Taylor made a case for this being the season close, because then you close with, Oh, Hey, there's a pregnancy on board Voyager. That's not a bad thing to leave the season with, but had those been flip flopped and had the 37s been the season ender and this come right before that, that would have made a very interesting case for her to stick around. Stay tuned, folks, and follow my thread with <laughs> And then, uh, you know, but speaking of Wildman, her husband is at DS9 because, ah, damn, I, I hope he survives the, uh, oh, what, what's that coming his way? Um, oh, a war, a giant war, war coming his way. So I hope yeah. that he will be okay. And by the way, this is another place where we reiterate this episode was shot during the first season kind of a shame that it aired in september of 95 because they've been gone for nine months at this point <laughs> and and wildman's uh condition would not be i'm pregnant it would be i'm having a baby right this minute okay so i did make mention that the thought the scene earlier with janeway and Chakotay kind of eyeballing each yeah. other, you know, about babies and being a generational ship. I thought that that was the scene until I got to this scene, the very last scene. Well, one of the last scenes of the episode, Janeway says, because of Chakotay's idea to be submissive, good work, commander. In the future, if I have any questions about mating behavior, I'll know where to go. <laughs> and the way that it's shot, Chakotay's unseen reaction because his back was facing her. There was that 90s kind of (laughs) kind of playful kind of spirit to it, but it can be taken a little bit differently nowadays. I, I think we just revealed it. Norman is our resident shipper. I have computed a high probability that the aliens encountered in this episode were actually giant sea monkeys. Hey, we will get right back to Elogium in a moment, but oh, we, we got to say it. We got to say thank you. Thank you. Thank yeah, you from the bottom of our hearts to everybody who has joined us at Patreon. There are more than 300 of you who have joined us there, and many, I would say most of you, have taken advantage of the benefit of our discord you hear us talk about discord and some of you 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 ask how do i get in there well you get in there through patreon that is your gateway to the community that we have built at discord 
That's well said, John, and, and very true. Patreon is is how you subscribe and support us. But one of the benefits, probably the greatest benefit, because it only costs you a dollar to access the Discord, is to join this community that we've been able to create probably just right under about a year's time now. And we did it because we were locked down from COVID and had nowhere to go and no one to talk to. And we thought that that was... That was detrimental to the spirit of being fans of Star Trek. So we created this community. We've cultivated this community. And when I say we, we mean you. You out there have created and cultivated this community of so many different fandoms. And we, I'm beyond, I'm beyond words of, of how grateful yeah, we are and it's, for it, that. Yeah, and it's kind of wonderful. I mean, Discord is the heart and soul of it. But look, even if you just join us at Patreon because, well, you want to support us, we are uh, definitely grateful for that. Or maybe you want some of the exclusive Mission Log uh, swag that is available at Patreon. Well, you can get that, too. There are many, many reasons to join us there. And you can do it, as Norm said, for as little as a dollar a month. You can even get a discount if you sign up for an annual membership we would love to see you there at patreon.com slash mission log. And let me give a shout out by name to some of our most recent members who have joined us. Jeremy, David, Anthony, Sam, John, Scott, Esther. Love seeing you all there. Love seeing some new faces in our weekly live chats, our weekly live discussion that we have about mission log episodes. So if you want to see what that is all about, again, patreon.com slash mission log. We will see you there and then we will see you in the discord. Norm, should we have a policy about fraternization? We're Starfleet. We don't fraternize. <laughs> That's, you know, uh, I, I think this is always, like, no matter what, this is one of those situations that in a professional environment, and I can't speak to anything that is military or quasi-military because I have not been there, um, but certainly we have all had professional jobs in office environments, uh, in work environments that have different cultures, and, and it's sort of a... There's never a one-size-fits-all kind of policy that you can act. And I think some companies go way overboard just by saying none. There is none, absolutely not, can't have it. That almost immediately backfires no matter what. People don't pay attention mm -hmm. to it. And then the other direction is that if it's too permissive, too lax, then you could open yourself up for other sorts of problems. I like that... Star Trek every now and then has shown us these examples of the crew becoming friends, becoming families, becoming lovers, and that's not always the source of drama. That's not always the biggest deal. It just seems like a natural part of these people being people and being in the environment that they're in because these extreme circumstances draw them together. I do like that Janeway says to Chakotay, Starfleet has always been reluctant to regulate people's personal lives. I, I, we need a line like that in there, and we need somebody like Janeway to say it and to kind of put Chakotay in his place. Because Chakotay, you are a buzzkill, and you seem a bit <laughs> over-involved in your crew's lives. I mean, he's if these were Muppets... If they were all played by Muppets, Sam the Eagle would be playing Chakotay, right? <laughs> oh, God, that's can, awesome. Can you picture it? Yeah. I really need to put that tattoo on Sam the yeah, Eagle. Yeah, because you think it's Tuvok. You think Tuvok would be Sam the Eagle, but no, 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 it's Chakotay in this case. Mm. And uh, <laughs> see, now, now you're stuck on that. Yeah. K 
can the captain not afford to have romantic entanglements? That was sort of the heartbreaking moment, though, where Janeway says, like, no, 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 I can't regulate my crew's personal lives. I can't take that away from them. These are people, and I want them to be as comfortable, as real, as relaxed, live their lives the way that they can live them. But then she excludes herself from that. That is the lonely position of being captain. It kind of harkens back to Kirk or Picard, um, mm-hmm. certainly not affording themselves that. And it makes those moments where she's holding the picture of Mark even more tragic. And I guess, you know, the reason that I'm so interested in any type of discussion like this is that Star Trek very often plays coy with regard to onboard relationships. I I wrote down some examples, and we might get to them later, but, you know, if you go through it, TOS, you essentially have Kirk with what you know will be these short flings, which, by the way, way overplayed in the popular imagination than what we actually get on screen, you know? Mm-hmm. They mature that a little bit by the time you get to the Wrath of Khan, and you say, okay, now here's some of the consequence of that. Here's where he's been. Here's what he's been up to. But even then, when we get to Next Gen, there are these starts of looking at adult mature relationships that very often just get pulled back. They'll let them go only so far, and then they'll pull it back a bit because they don't want to show you too much. So an episode like this comes along and you go like, well, it's not just that these things happen, but they have to be discussed. And this is one of the only episodes, I think, up to now, where you can really see the complexity of crew relationships being discussed. And I think that's Mm kind of nice to see here. Well, it's not like in the Star Trek that we have seen from the beginning to now that we haven't seen interpersonal relationships between officers. Sure. Yeah. I mean, let's go all the way back to the original series. Kirk literally married two officers at the very beginning of Balance of Terror. You know, if, who, who then don't make it to the end of the episode. That's completely <laughs> other thing, right? But then yeah. let's go all the way. Let's say let's go to the next generation. I mean, you have Deanna and Will, yeah. and you have Deanna. And Worf. <laughs> yeah. But, but see, but, you know, but, but Deanna not- and Will is one of those where they, they pushed it. And then it's just sort of like, well, we got cold feet. We don't know what to do here. So we're just going to, like, wipe the slate clean and move on to Worf. And then but- wipe the slate clean with that and move Worf over to another show and marry him off. And, well, of course, we had our say about how that relationship went. Right, yeah. but the thing is, is that none in, in in those instances, I don't think that I, as far as I remember, nobody walked into any of their relationships in a turbo lift and kind of gave them the stink eye for right. being affectionate towards each right. other. That's what we're really kind of like getting at. Yeah. Why did Jacote or any character uh, put Tuvok in there? Put well, Tom Paris wouldn't have done it. Maybe <laughs> Harry Kim. Yeah, you know, maybe yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. Harry Kim would have been, you know, um, a, you know, uh, offended by what he saw because maybe it was something that was enforced upon him that he didn't think it was fair. But he's like, hey, I'm Starfleet; these are the rules. But but you know, but, so, but here's the, the inherent unfairness of all of that is that okay, Voyager has this separate extreme circumstance where they're in the Delta Quadrant. You know, as far as they know, it will take seventy years to get home. How? Hmm. Honestly, though, is that different from the Enterprise D being on a mission that is supposed to take, I can't remember if it was originally 10 or 12 years that they had, they had speculated, like, that's how long these missions will be compared to Kirk's five-year mission. 
I'm mm-hmm. sorry, but even in five years, put enough people together and people will get to know each other personally. They will pair off or more than pair off whatever wherever right. their biological urges take them and it's in it could be days yeah it could be it, it could, be it could hours. literally be you know, if you have the right chemistry yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah. so it, it's a little um I, I can understand why you might want to start out with some parameters in place, because certainly you want to avoid things like harassment and inappropriate behavior, maintaining a professional decorum. But at a certain mm-hmm. point, while well, we're working together and we're living together and we're socializing together, because guess what? We're in space. We got nowhere else to go. Here's the reality and the fantasy kind of colliding, yeah. because in my opinion, I always thought that human behavior was supposed to be beyond that in the 23rd, 24th century, you know, that people are supposed to treat people with far more respect, even in the work, quote unquote, workplace mm-hmm. of Starfleet than we're getting today. Isn't that what we're supposed to? That's that's what uh, people uh, are, find inspiration in looking towards a future that's beyond bigotry, beyond racism, beyond harassment, beyond abuse. Sure. Right. So but at the same time, though, writers are writers and writers are human and writers only know what they know. Yeah. So they're going to write these human situations for a future that's supposed to be devoid of these human situations. Well, but they're not devoid of emotions, though. And I think that's where it gets tricky because you're talking about romantic relationships. You're talking about more profound emotions from either side of that equation. So those are the things that get sticky. And particularly you're talking about uh, what Chakotay and Janeway are discussing, which I think is the most fascinating thing here. Again, it it makes such a difference when you place this episode in season one, because they Mm -hmm. have to confront the reality of, wow, we really are stuck. We really are dealing with the idea that we're that far away from home. What does this mean for our mission? There's the possibility we get back earlier, but there is a very distinct possibility that we won't at all. So who are we to say how you can live your life across a couple of generations of time? Mm-hmm. Well, that's why that's why I mentioned this whole like when you brought up the thirty sevens mm-hmm. and you know where it was and where it was slotted and how this could have been slotted you know right afterwards. Yeah. Pulling that thread, this is really, in my opinion, and I'm not going to do like the whole writer's hat thing here because I don't really want to change anything. Yeah, yeah, I just yeah. want to like kind of find the logical order of this episode and the 37s because when you really think about it, what Janeway and Chakotay are discussing in her ready room mm-hmm. with Chakotay's awkward bowl of soup moment, <laughs> you know, she makes a very good point. And I think that this is probably one of the most profound points going back to why Voyager is special. Mm. She says, Who'd have thought we'd be considering a generational ship when we were ordered on a three-week mission? Yeah, right, right. And Chakotay said, I know it's it's a problem that we have to face now. And then these are the parameters of said problem. What Janeway says, what would that mean for the children? What kind of life would be giving them aboard a starship traveling through a potentially hostile part of space? Are we equipped to provide for their needs? Child care educational facilities we'd be building an entire community on board this ship that's a massive commitment now yeah now take that chunk of that reality which is all relevant and true yeah. it's kind of like keiko fighting for the you know the school for federation children on deep space i was about to say we need keiko right? here with miles could be done with her and she could be the teacher on voyager <laughs> this is where keiko went <laughs> when miles says that keiko's gone right, right? So now you take this conversation and now you overlay it with the conversation, like cut to Janeway, ha- like staring off 
in her ready room thinking about how she's going to ask the crew to stay on the planet with the 47s or leave with her to go on this mission that that promises nothing right, right. she was shown technically she was shown by Evansville and so were the crew what these cities would afford them yeah and then these natural pairings off Samantha Wildman possibly being able to set a future for herself mm-hmm. in these cities the the Voyager crew aging out in these cities, having these couples turn into marriages, have these marriages turn into families, have these families turn into generations in this city or in these cities. Yeah. That would have been the perfect way to really push this point home in this episode is to have the 37s weigh on in it more. How interesting would it be if... You know, you you introduce this story early on with Samantha Wildman. We're you know planting that idea for the audience that um, that this that this is a reality, like that this will happen. She is pregnant. And she is soon to be giving birth to her child. Then you present this idea of the thirty sevens. You present the the city. What if that had come even later? What if? Samantha has already given birth to her child. And then what does that conversation sound like when she has to kind of lay her emotions bare with Janeway and and figure out Mm -hmm. either way, it's a profound decision to stay uh, in that city with the 37s or to to stay on Voyager. That that could have been uh, a very impactful scene as well if she had, you know, bared her soul to Janeway about that. Could you imagine, John, at the end of the 37s when they open up that door in the cargo bay and it's her, mm-hmm. Samantha Wildman, standing there. Yeah. And then Janeway asks why. She goes, I'm pregnant. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Dun, 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 dun. dun. To be yeah, continued. to be continued. Right? right, exactly. Because that's a very powerful reason and something that you really can't argue against. Yeah. Yeah, very true. Her need to stay, her desire to stay very true. Know, for her unborn child. All right, this is all fascinating stuff, but I, I feel like there's so much in this episode that, that we need to move on. I want to talk about Neelix because there's a lot of Neelix stuff going on here. Dude mm-hmm. carries around a lot of jealousy. That seems to be one of the guiding emotions, guiding reactions that he has. He lashes out. He's overprotective of Kess, which then makes me wonder why is Kess there why has she not confronted him about his overbearing jealousy because seriously that needs to stop it's it's getting to be a bit much he is dismissive again of the doctor's status i mean literally diminishing him because he is a hologram and not flesh and blood which i get he's done a few times but here it's even more so neelix has an anxious attachment style and also he is burdening everyone around him with his personal <laughs> issues. It's, um, right. uh, th- th- there's a lot there that is unsavory about Neelix. Uh, but I will say this, you know, Janeway, I, I got to hand it to her for doing what a good commander should do as annoying as he is, as inappropriate as Neelix's entry onto the bridge may be. She takes him seriously. She listens to his concerns Anybody else there could have, should have, would have dismissed him entirely. But she does what she should do, and she does it with grace. Agreed. And then, and, and then there's Kess, and there's the interesting stuff there. Um, the, the very short, by our human standards, very short lifespan, the early adulthood, the early puberty, etc., the elogium as their sexual 
maturation uh, and that one one time in a lifetime opportunity to reproduce. It, it it presents this sort of interesting contrast between emotional maturity, because I think Cass clearly compared to Neelix is a lot more ma- emotionally mature, even if she is in a heightened state during this, because there are outside factors as well. But then there is biological maturity just you know her her body is ready again influenced by the by these outside forces but all of this raises this level of urgency she's the only okampa that the voyager crew have and her people may entirely die out since the caretaker is no longer you know taking care (laughs) so there is there is clearly another layer to the urgency that that we've got uh on top of her and what i find that is so interesting and touching here is that Kess needs these parental figures she needs this mother figure to talk about her own reproductive health it definitely says something that she hasn't yet or can't or won't say it outright to neelix or the emh but she will talk to janeway when she comes into the room, I, you know, there, there is part of the power difference there, the, the sort of the chain of command, but there is also the woman to woman aspect of it. Yeah. I found that interesting that the doctor didn't seem to have as much biological information or data, you know, on Kess, because I do remember in caretaker, or maybe it wasn't parallax that he was so put out that he had all of these foreign crew members Mm. running around his ship that did not check in with him and he did not have any type of medical data on but then they were all supposed to submit to a full medical scan yeah for his records right specifically because they were the only talaxian and the only okampan on board so did that not happen or did we just forget about it yeah yeah, I don't know. Um, I, right. yeah, we may have uh, we may have forgotten about it. Well, it may be both. Okay. And then you know, I think we we also need to talk about these scenes. Definitely not what the episode is about, maybe, but they definitely ring true, and they illustrate something that we do as humans. Kess and Neelix talking about his feelings being a father. He's he is concerned. He is not ready. He needs time understandably she takes this personally and is hurt and again she is in a heightened state but then in her own reflection realizes that maybe she's not ready either then comes the apology and the disappointment for neelix how should we feel about all of this is it just kind of what we do with our own short-term thinking that that our short-term goals can be completely misaligned especially when we think that time is utterly critical so did neelix react poorly did she react poorly did they both react poorly just at different times you know i think that the biggest issue that i have with this this whole relationship between kess and neelix is i don't understand the relationship between kess and neelix (laughs) that is the perfect way to put it yes do go on right i don't understand because they're not consistently written in a way where they depend upon each other when they need it the most. There are occasions. I'm not saying that they're not. I'm just saying that 
to build the suspension of disbelief that these two would come together and have this conversation of any kind of quality or meaning, you have to have the consistency of them discussing this earlier. Yeah. In certain situations, like let's go all the way back to phage when Neelix is on that bio bed, possibly dying because his lungs are missing. Mm-hmm. You know, Kess would have been like, I don't want to lose you. I could have, I see myself having a family with you or starting something amazing in our life together if you ever get better. And then, you know, something like Neelix would say, I would love that too. If I get out of here, let's work on that. You know, things of that nature, planting, literally planting the biological seed Mm -hmm. and the, you know, and the theoretical seed of that relationship moving forward. But here's the issue with Neelix is that he's so poorly written as an emotional constant. It's either Mm -hmm. he's flaring up with Mm -hmm. her or he's apologizing to her, which means that actually in the moment of him being reasonable and logical is really uncomfortable to watch because you don't know if he's going to flare up or apologize later for it. You know, you're right, because that, that's one of the most honest scenes that we've gotten of him is mm-hmm. just him trying to work through the math in his head. Like, how does he feel? This is a lot to be dumped on him. It's a lot to be dumped on anyone at that moment and i think that really nails it is that it's so out of context for him it's so out of what we normally see out of him that um that might actually be the biggest problem with their relationship because you know look one thing that i did is i i kind of looked at this idea of the age difference uh we don't actually know how old neelix is we don't know how talaxians age we don't when we don't know when their maturity sets in a compens we know have a very short lifespan that means that they reach their physical maturity way early they reach their quote-unquote adulthood way early it's just a completely different scale of things um and and i i don't know that necessarily that is the point of judgment that we should have because all right look if you want to do the real world thing jennifer lean when this episode was made was 21 ethan phillips was 40 okay age differences are age differences that does not tell you everything that you should or could know about a relationship it's one single aspect and there are all kinds of imbalances in every kind of relationship regardless so it's literally just focusing on one thing that may or may not tell you anything about the relationship um in this case i i think you actually hit the nail on the head here which is it it has to do with his emotional immaturity toward her constantly <laughs> that you really feel like Kess is the one who needs to sit him down and say, okay, look, I love you, but we're going to call up the emergency psychological hologram and you're going to get some help because I, I don't need him. He's not <laughs> right. real. He's a hologram. How could he be real? How could he tell me what that, to do? Oh, I'm sorry. Here are some flowers. Yeah, right, right. Yes. Yeah, All there right. you go. And scene. That's how that goes with Cass and Neelix. Who doesn't want an emergency foot massage hologram? Anybody? I didn't think so. Well, I don't know about any of you out there, but my cravings are gone, and I think I've seen the last of whatever was on my hand. So now we can focus on <laughs> yeah. the end of the episode where we try and wrap things up 
we do what we do here on Mission Log for every single episode. We look at, does the episode hold up? Does it withstand the test of time? And then finally, we bring it all home with about the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein, if there are any, because sometimes there are, sometimes they're not, but I think there are in this case. But we will turn it over to our esteemed Dr. Spock for this episode, <laughs> the, the man who knows about the babies. Or maybe not. I don't know. Maybe not. Yeah, yeah. But John I, I, like, I, I like how you use the Dr. Spock, not Mr. Spock, because in Absolutely. this episode, Dr. Spock is appropriate. Yeah. So look, when we approach that question, I mean, there's a lot to unpack here about whether or not the episode holds up and how we feel about it at the end of the day. Because, you know, this question is nebulous for a reason. We get to apply our own criteria to it for a reason. It is as, as this show is and always has been just purely subjective, what what do your hosts get out of it? And I already mentioned that I, I tried to jog my memory of Star Trek up until this episode aired for any real attempt to take on difficult personal topics like, you know, puberty and pregnancy. And a lot of times to come up short, you know, I would say that there is a tiny parallel of Kirk trying to help Charlie Evans in Charlie X, the way that Janeway tries to be the adult sounding board for Kess. But Kess is in a different place. Kess is more mature to begin with. And let's face it, what Janeway does here is far more sophisticated and far more real than, than what we had in TOS. Not, not you, to take away that there are good things in Charlie X. You didn't, want to see, you didn't want to see Janeway teaching Kess like Kung Fu falls? Out of fight. Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. Exactly, exactly. No. And then you, you've got the occasional attempt uh, to explore something with pregnancy or raising children, like we started with Deanna and then we had with the Crushers. Um, but most of the time, you just have these kind of cursory explorations and we end up with well, what we do here kind of a, a one stop and then we wrap it up and move on so you know my question becomes how do the events of something so personal like this then affect characters like Cass and Neelix going forward so I feel like what we got here was this kind of deep psychological dive this deep relationship dive but then we put a bow on it at the end and move on. And I feel like, no, 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 this is actually just the start. This is the place where we're starting to get to the heart of the matter of what drives these people and what their compatibilities or, or incompatibilities are. But we're just going to move on to the next thing next week. So that's a little bit of a troubling thing about this episode. I, I'm also... I'm not a fan always of letting the A and B plots converge here the way they did in particular. It's a little too cute. It's a little too on the nose. And it's not to say that I always want the A and B plot to be completely just separated from each other where they make no sense at all. But in this, it was just... Uh, you could feel the contrivance and and that was a bit of a challenge. And also... The CG. I think we need to talk about that. It was probably fine for 1995. It's not something that holds up very well today. So this is a clunky episode that, that maybe gets a C or a C- minus for execution. But I do think they get an A, not an A+, plus, but they get an A for effort in at least taking on something that Star Trek just rarely ever does. 
being able to do this kind of relationship, potential pregnancy drama, and, and just let it play out, at least for the course of this episode we did. And I will say this, that for as many faults as we can find here, or many as many attempts as they do to rescue this episode, the MVP here is very obvious, and that is Jennifer Lean. She is wonderful in this episode, and it's easy to really feel for her in this show. So I think she elevates it quite a bit. This episode holding up, I think, is marginal because I, I think it's only as good as how it informs the characters going forward. And I feel like I probably haven't seen that yet because just on its own, this really doesn't entirely work. It's an A for effort and that's it. Well, well, and an A plus for Jennifer Lee. She, yeah. She's great in this. What about you, man? So I, I need to ask. So when you talk mm-hmm. about the CG, uh, is, that's something mm-hmm. that doesn't hold up well. Yeah. Is this is the is there a specific scene that you're thinking of, like that I'm thinking of when the uh, Voyager rams the giant protozoa and it just kind of bounces off the hull? Yeah, yeah. We we get a, a couple of shots of the big guy and like yeah. the little swarm actually looks fine. Right. That that it looks cool and you know you, you mentioned that the lighting in that scene was really nice when we see them from the uh, the ready room. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the the big one, it, it oof, yeah, it's yeah. not good. Like yeah. I'm not going to knock like 1990s CG uh, at all because a lot of people out here know that I'm a Babylon Five fan, it's my favorite mm-hmm. fandom of all time, and mm-hmm. it had yeah. terrible CG. So, but. <laughs> I still love it because the story is good. And I do think the story yeah. is good here. I think that you're yeah. right. I think that there was an honest and earnest message that they were trying to convey here. I like the episode for it was trying to tell us. Like you right. said, it's the A right. for effort. You know, the execution wasn't great, but it was trying to tell us something new. It wasn't executed properly in many respects, but the idea was there. And I think that being able to invest yourself in the idea and trying to make that that mental adjustment of, oh, this is where they're going with this story. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's kind of like see if we can work with this. Yeah. Now I like the whole thing about the isolationism being addressed in Voyager. I think that that's where we need to be in this, <laughs> pardon the pun, in this space. Yeah. Right. Um, Chakotay stumbling on a romantic private interlude. I wanted to see more of that. I wanted yeah. to see more. There was the episode where Janeway and Chakotay were going to breakfast and she's talking about eventually we're going to see these officers start pairing off, you know, yeah. and having children. In my opinion, they haven't done enough of that to warrant the consistency of that being an actual issue on the ship. So, and think about it this way. And I asked you this before, what would Chakotay have done if both of those crewmen were Maquis, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Or even more interesting, what if one was Starfleet and one was Maquis? Ooh, right? Okay. Because this is how you have that organic way of removing people from being outsiders and bringing them that more that inclusivity into the situation. You know, the Maquis are now literally folding into Starfleet by way of relationships, something organic, something that can't be helped because nature does what nature does. Right. Yeah. (sighs) Neelix is just a big it's just a big issue here in this yeah. episode yeah. Um, for reasons that I've already said earlier in, in our discussion points. And I think the one thing that I still can't reconcile with, and maybe someone out there can educate me. You know, I know there are a lot of Voyager fans that have been there since the beginning. I don't understand the 
the angst and the consternation about Neelix and Kess as characters, especially Kess and especially what she brings us, what Jennifer brings us in this episode. Look at what she's bringing us in just in terms of the full emotional commitment that Kess is going through, the terror that she's going through. There are wonderful bits of comedy you know, when she was trying to hide the bowls and she's hopping on one leg mm-hmm. and kind yeah. of like the obfuscation of the truth in that scene. The scene that she gives so much of herself with with Kate, you know, obviously acting up to an actor's quality that Kate is in that scene. So yeah. they're meeting each other on a very good footing for Jennifer to exhibit her talents. Yeah. Knowing this and seeing this, why the issue with her? And knowing Detrell and seeing Ethan in that why the issue with him? Yeah. I just still don't yeah. get it. I don't know the state of the audience of that time, 1995. So mm-hmm. I don't understand uh, why those characters were isolated in such a way when they have the ability, and it's been proven that they have the quality to add to the story, but still operate under kind of like this strange prejudice you know, mm-hmm. towards their characters. But mm-hmm. I, for one, would recommend this episode just on the strength of her performance alone. Yeah, I, it, she saves it. She really does, yeah. you know. Um, so did you find morals, meanings, messages here? I mean, we certainly had a lot to talk about, <laughs> but, yeah, but what do you go home with? Um, you know, the doctor says something really interesting to Cass, and it's pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is At least it was obvious to me as a moral meaning or messages. He says... There's a powerful biological drive, at times almost impossible to resist. Species are driven by these urges in order to survive. Now, that's an interesting, obvious message. Not necessarily the moral, but the moral, I think, is what Kess says in response. She says, but isn't that why we have minds? To look beyond biological urges, to consider their consequences, if I'm going to ask myself to look at those consequences, then I have to ask myself some questions. Am I ready to have this child? Am I prepared to give that child the attention and devotion it deserves? Am I capable of taking on such a huge responsibility? There's so much I haven't done. There's so much I want to study and learn. I'm not sure I'm finished growing. How can I help a child grow? And that really right stuck me as being profound and again from a character who hasn't been written this well yet until this episode yeah so looking at it from ten thousand feet down you know Mm -hmm. from a bird's eye view i'm not a parent right Mm -hmm. Uh, but i think that parenthood and the decision to become a parent is something that i'll never understand and this is the question or questions that kes is asking of herself and i think that it's responsible for both her and Neelix in that moment where Neelix is trying to say, I'm not sure if I'm ready to be a parent. Those are important decisions to face. How can Kes help a child grow if she's still a child herself? And in the end, what would that do to both parent and child? Would that cause resentment? Would it cause a rift in their relationship? I personally chose not to be a parent because at the stage in my life where I should have been, I looked and I said, I asked myself these same questions. I still wasn't fully mature as a person, let alone be responsible for the maturity of another life. Right. I just couldn't do it, you know? And there were so many people out there saying, you would have been a great this, a great that. I'm like, you know what? I'm okay with being a godfather and uncle. That's fine. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Right. So I think that the moral here is something that is very profound. It's very real. 
the choice and the responsibility of making that decision, not just for your life, but for the life of the child as well. Sometimes parents make these decisions either too soon or too late. Sometimes that reaction of poor timing affects that relationship between parent and child. And I think that's very responsible for Kess and, and Neelix up to a point to ask themselves, because is she at this time during the elogium forced to make this decision, which would make a relationship change for the future between her and her child? Or is it something that would have been more positive and something that she couldn't even foresee if that happened. That's yeah. what I came away with. There's yeah. so many different complexities to it, but that's the best way I can boil it down. How about you, John? There are. I, well, I mean, and look, and that, that's one of the things about an episode like this is like, it may not be the best episode, but it gives us stuff to talk about. And, and I feel like, again, we've maybe even in our time here, which we're probably running long, scratched the surface because... Our listener is going to have a lot to chime in at about, too. Uh, so what did I pick up from this? Uh, well, first of all, just from a very practical matter, have that conversation about whether or not you want to have kids way before you start entangling your romantic lives. Uh, I think any of those very profound, important life decisions are the types of things that should be out on the table and discussed openly and honestly before you get too far down that road. Now, that said, I get that these are extraordinary circumstances and they are heightened for the sci-fi drama aspect of the show. But there is something that is at once contrived yet wholly believable about the friction between Neelix and Kess over what is an incredibly important issue. It's tough to see them fighting through that, and it's even tougher to see them react to each other without a good sense of rational understanding or empathy. But this is what Star Trek does, though. It takes these all-too-human attributes, holds them up as a mirror through our alien characters. It just happened to do that on this very personal level this time around. I imagine that argument that Kess and Neelix had is an argument that many, many couples have had. <laughs> so I get that, and I appreciate that about this episode. Also, as I mentioned before, in this particular episode, there is this excellent interplay with the idea of biological maturity versus emotional maturity. Mm. It, it can be argued that Kess is and also isn't mature by both counts. And it is certainly easily argued that Neelix isn't <laughs> mature. Again, the guy probably needs to work through some issues. But here's yet another place where I'm going to give this episode some props, where it otherwise might be more easily dismissible. So we spend a lot of time on Mission Log examining the high ideals of Star Trek. There are important moral decisions to be made, ethical quandaries to be dealt with. And we have humans and aliens working together in an idealized version of the future, which reflects so much of the present day concerns about politics or social needs or our own humanity. What Star Trek doesn't often do is ground itself in some very basic human needs and desires. Now, he was just joking when he said this, but uh, the writer of this episode, Ken Biller, said that he was struggling since this was his first assignment until he cracked the code that, that all this episode was about. It was about eating and sex. <laughs> and, and, and honestly, I, I, I can't find any faults with that. I, I, I think that that that's what makes this episode unique and commendable 
in that way. We get to take some of our own lofty ideas and bigger-than-life characters and ground them just for a bit. We get to go on a journey with them that feels a bit more primal and urgent and ultimately very relatable. So this isn't one of those episodes that may force you to make a do-or-die choice like the trolley problem, but it does hit close to home when it comes to some of those more personal, intimate drives and conversations that ultimately fill our lives. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Non Sequitur. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Schabel. I can't decide which spin-off we need more, Raising Kids with Kiss and Neelix, or Commander Chekhote, Love Police. End Transmission This is a Roddenberry Podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.